This is Winning Slowly, taking the long view on technology, religion, ethics, and art, because doing good work takes time. I'm Chris Kreitcho. And I'm Stephen Caradini. And today we're going to talk about Spotify and the subcultures of music that it supports or doesn't support. Before that, though, some follow-up. A few weeks ago, we talked about the ethics of technology as relates to specific kinds of technologies and how we think about good and evil technologies and so on. And listener Andrew Fallows commented that one of the factors, and we thought this was worth highlighting, is both the the relationship between the probability of harm and the degree of harm. So he gave the example, you could use a drinking glass as a weapon by smashing it against someone's head. But because its design suggests a different purpose, and there's plenty of cultural conditioning around not using it as a weapon, the fact that it could is greatly mitigated by the fact that it probably won't be. By counterexample, a hand grenade is very difficult to use for a cause that won't do harm, and its design suggests a harmful purpose, so it's much more difficult to argue that it's a good or neutral device. And that goes right along with the argument we made where we said, look, a fusion reactor and a fusion bomb are not you know, they, they have some underlying commonalities, but they're very, very, very different. And we think that's important. We think that's worth highlighting. So great feedback, Andrew. We also think that in a different socially constructed environment, the hand grenade might only be for mining. But in this case, <laughs> it's used for war. And so right. there is social conditioning that brings a level of layering on top of the fact that its basic purpose is to blow stuff up. And that's mm-hmm. kind of hard to square against uh, productive capacity in some sense. That being said, thanks for the follow-up, and back to music. Particularly about Spotify and the subcultures of listening that it supports or doesn't support. We've talked a lot about music and about the ways that music works in the new media ecologies that we live in, particularly the YouTube, online, permanently on culture that we have with music now as a result of the online permanently on culture that we have pretty much everywhere. However, we're really interested in cultures that aren't online permanently on music listening cultures and how the shift towards the distribution platforms of online permanently on is not being uptaken evenly everywhere in the musical culture. So for example, as Stephen and I were talking about a little bit before we started recording. If you're really into Hungarian folk music, Spotify might not be the best place to go if you want to find a lot of that. You, you might find a little, but in general, there are massive subcultures of all sorts of kinds of music that are difficult to find on Spotify and are going to get paid so little out of Spotify that the relationship between the kinds of people making those music and Spotify or Apple Music or RDO or any of these players, Spotify is sort of the de facto example at this point because of the biggest and arguably most successful, those relationships are going to be very different than the relationships of a moderately successful artist or especially a very successful artist. So if you're Sleeping at Last, who we interviewed a few weeks ago, you're going to have a much bigger return on putting your music on Spotify than if you are a Hungarian folk yeah. artist. And if you're Taylor Swift, yeah. you're going to have a much bigger result Although yet. Although actually not really, because Taylor Swift's music isn't on Spotify at the moment. So That's why I said yeah. if. There you go. 
So another thing to think about is that Spotify wants to be the everything store for music, just like Amazon wants to be the everything store for everything. And (laughs) one of the things that makes it interesting to me is that even though you can theoretically get all Hungarian folk music ever recorded and put it on Spotify, that doesn't mean that the subculture of listening that is surrounding Hungarian folk music or Albanian folk music or old 45s or any of these cultures that have specifically grounded, specifically realized subcultures of listening, it's, it's not going to affect those in the same way. Whereas if I'm listening to Katy Perry, the subculture of listening, which is the monoculture of listening, is that, hey, <laughs> you can get a Katy Perry single on Spotify and she's part of a major label. They've got deals with Spotify anyway, whatever, listen to it, enjoy it, share it via the Spotify ticker that says, hey, I was listening to a Katy Perry song. And that's how you're supposed to listen to major label music on Spotify. You're not supposed to have any sort of connection with other people in a literal embodied face-to-face space. In other musical subcultures, there are face-to-face interactions that mediate the experience of music more than a digital. And Beyond that, there are some musical subcultures that Spotify just doesn't work right for. (laughs) Like classical music. One of the things that a few commentators have noted, especially in the hubbub around Apple Music's release this past summer, but that has been true of all the major streaming services and attempts at matching services and everything else, is that when you start getting classical recordings into the mix, Technologies that were invented and worked around the idea of CDs and specifically pop music CDs might not work so well for recordings that don't fit that specific pattern. So, for example, if you have five separate recordings of, say, Mahler's Second Symphony, because you, like me, are a classical music nerd, and I don't have that many copies of Mahler's Second Symphony, but I, I do have multiple copies of a number of pieces by Sibelius and so on. Well, iTunes matching or any other things based on the CD database approach may have trouble when you start saying, oh, look, I have these three different recordings. Or if you have recordings of live concerts that aren't in that database because they weren't released through standard labels. Or if you have recordings of folk music, or any number of things that fit outside sort of the standard pop genres, the tools we've built over the last few decades just aren't especially well suited to managing those in terms of digital collections of sound. Not because it's impossible to do that, but simply because the tools we've built haven't had that in mind. Yeah, they've been prioritized for a certain set of musicians and musician types. And that's a thing that happens when you make a technology. You privilege something over something else. And so Mm -hmm. in this case, major labels, which wanted to sell a bunch of CDs because that was a storage platform that could hold more content than a cassette tape, they wanted to put the money forward to change over cassettes to CDs. They wanted everyone to buy their CDs. And so they were invested in making that technology. So a lot of the decisions that were made, particularly on the metadata level, are set up for artists that have one songwriter or multiple songwriters, but songwriter, performer, and genre. Classical music often has dozens of performers, a composer, a conductor, a 
an associated orchestra. An arranger. An arranger. And you might be interested in a bunch of arrangements by a particular person, or you might be interested in a collection of things by a given conductor, but not so much the specific work. Or you might want just a given conductor conducting the works of a specific composer with a specific orchestra, or all sorts of different things that just don't come up in pop music. And to be clear, we're not even really critiquing those decisions. At at the most basic level, those were the decisions that the people making these software could afford to make because the big labels generate way more money than classical music does, and they were able to fund some of this. That's, That's a legitimate issue. But Now, as we see continuing developments in this space, we start wondering, perhaps there's an opportunity for someone here to address some of these concerns and to open it up a little, to change the direction a little, to serve some of these niches a bit better. Right. That's partially a concern of ours that's possible because a lot of the metadata creation and metadata tagging does come from a grassroots ground up crowdsourcing sort of model, even though crowdsourcing wasn't a word when this sort of thing happened. (laughs) There's a coterie of people and tools that built up that has to do with, hey, you have a CD that hasn't had its information entered in yet. Can you please do that so that it can go into the GraceNote query database? And I've done that for dozens of CDs because most of the CDs that I put into iTunes until very recently when they started (laughs) cross-referencing the iTunes store versus the GraceNote query database, which I don't know when that started happening or when it started happening effectively, but I've done it for dozens of CDs because until that happened, pretty much every CD I put into my computer was not recognized. And so, (laughs) so I did that a lot. And to iTunes credit, I do it a lot less now. Their uh, algorithms, methods, whatever it is, They're a lot better now, and so I don't have to do it as much. But it's still a pretty usual occurrence. I'll stick a CD in. It won't recognize it. I'll put in the song titles, put in the songwriter, and away we go. Mm -hmm. So if that's the process, then why can't we open this up to, hey, I just want to make a new category, not just a new information for the category. Can I just put the arranger in here? And yes, perhaps that would get unwieldy very quickly as everyone (laughs) wants to put in a gazillion different things. But I actually don't think that that would happen. I think that's a straw man argument and that there's a finite number of things that people really want to tag from a musical piece. And I think that at the outward edge is classical music. And I think Mm -hmm. that there's a pretty well-defined set of things that people want to tag anyway. I don't think people are going to be tagging where I heard this song for the first time or anything weird like that. (laughs) Yeah, and even if they were, it would be pretty straightforward to define as a sort of loose standard. Hey, these are the things that people commonly put and that are relevant to the public. So where I heard this for the first time isn't all that public relevant. Who the composer and arranger are is obviously publicly relevant. And that's in fact how the system we have now came to be. People coalesced around certain kinds of metadata that were relevant. One sort of related category that emerges very quickly here is the idea of mashups and remixes, because this is a huge and flourishing and burgeoning part of modern culture, as well as, to be fair, very much a large part of how music has worked throughout history with sort of a blip where it wasn't as big a thing during the 20th century because it was illegal in various ways to distribute. 
but it's increasingly coming back to the fore, especially with some of these alternative distribution mechanisms. If you're a remixer and you like doing mashups and you don't have a license, you can still get away with distributing them in a lot of cases because you can quietly put them up on a torrent site and quietly point your fans to where they are and people still get access to them. Yeah, and you can use the obscurity defense and Mm -hmm. put it up on SoundCloud and hope that nobody thinks you're big enough to get a (laughs) takedown notice for. You can find, I don't even know how many of these people hanging out on SoundCloud because it's Mm -hmm. just not economically viable to go try to take down every single remix of every single Avicii song. (laughs) (laughs) And, And moreover, as many artists are coming to realize, as long as that points back to where it came from, you know, there's a reason that our content is licensed the way it is. It's just Creative Commons, give us attribution if you remix it. Many artists are starting to move in that direction because they are realizing that remixes actually reflect well on your music and remixes often point people to your music and they can therefore be valuable but they're also just artistically interesting for a case of a licensed example of that that hit recently ryan adams covers of every song on taylor swift's 1989 album are a fascinating example of what can happen when an artist has permission to do that now Undoubtedly, he had to go jump through all the hoops and dot all his I's and cross all his T's legally to get permission. But the result is a fascinating piece of art that takes and radically reinterprets the album in very interesting ways. Now, would I say it's better or worse than the original? No. Some of his interpretations I like better than Taylor Swift's original. Some of them I like less well. Shake It Off is really weird, sung the way he (laughs) sings it. But, uh... It's fascinating, and it's the kind of thing that can happen that is really valuable artistically, we think, and that some artists are increasingly open to with or without remuneration. Mm -hmm. But again, not necessarily super friendly in terms of the way Spotify or iTunes or any of these databases are set up. Right, because if you've got multiple songwriters, but they're not all equally in the song, right? (laughs) So you've got the bass line that was played by this one person that was part of the song, but it's not the entirety of the song. So maybe the songwriter didn't actually write mm-hmm. the bass line. And maybe you want to credit the bass player, but you don't really want to credit the rest of the song because then you would get into copyright <laughs> infringement. But then you have questions of, well, if it's a bass line that's written by a session player and wasn't actually written by the songwriter, does it count as copyright infringement of the songwriter Or does it count as copyright infringement of the bass player? And can it count as copyright infringement of the bass player? Because the bass player doesn't own the copyright to the song. (laughs) It gets very weird very quickly. And so this is why the cultures of listening argument is not just the only reason that Spotify Mm -hmm. is failing some of the music listeners and music makers of the world. It's that there's just a whole lot more complexity that we can acknowledge and that music nerds want to acknowledge then is able to be translated at the moment through the technologies that we have. And that's A, weird, (laughs) and B, something we can fix in that if we really do want this sort of stuff, then A, we can build it, or B, we can make enough noise to say, hey, this is something important to us, and this is something that we need to do. On that end, there's a startup named Dart from Nashville that is doing it. They just decided that they were going to 
make a service that's sort of like TuneCore, a distributor that gets your classical music onto the major distribution networks and tries their best to get all the metadata in the right spots and connected with the right music. And that's totally admirable. Mm -hmm. And we are totally on board with Dart. It's a great step in the right direction. And we need a lot more steps, but you have to start by taking that first step and saying, okay, here are tools for classical musicians to do this more effectively. Now, one of the things those points Stephen just made highlight is that there's also a legal side of this that really does need to change. And IP law is a complicated, hairy mess. It is arcane. It is difficult to parse through. It benefits weird parties in the system and not necessarily the parties you would think would be benefited by it. And it's difficult for many artists even to provide the freedoms that they want to. There's a reason that things like the Creative Commons licenses have gone through multiple revisions just to allow artists really to put things out for free and guarantee that they stay free and don't get snatched up and then copyrighted so that someone else is profiting from them but not letting the original artist or others remix and remash. This is hard work, and we, we mm. genuinely need some people to go do legal work in terms of working as lawyers and working as politicians passing laws and so on to improve this area and not merely for the mega rights holders, the Disneys of the world. Mm -hmm. But also right. for the the sleeping at last and the Hungarian folk artists of the world, right? And the patron saint of this endeavor is Lawrence <laughs> Lessig, who wrote several books that are extremely valuable on this topic. The primary one being called Remix, and Lessig decided that he was only going to be able to make change if he got into politics, which is what he does now, and he's actually considering running a third-party campaign to correct the big money in politics, which he thinks is the reason that corporate protections in IP law exist, which is not as far as a step <laughs> as it may seem. So there are definitely people who are doing this. We just want more of them. So the upside of this is that, sure, there's things going on to try to correct this, but there are also people that just opt out entirely of these digital cultures, whether that's by going to hard disks, hard <laughs> vinyl, cassettes, and just making that the primary way that they do their music selling, whether it's opting out of the digital and the economical altogether and just doing live performances, and whether it's moving towards being hobbyist, there's a large group of people that just say, okay, we're just not going to try. We're just going to make our music. We're just going to do our thing. And if we make some money, cool. If we don't, no worries. Like, we're just going to do music. And all of these things, again, aren't served well by Spotify, which is why they are the response to Spotify. They don't get quantified by Spotify, and that's the way that people like it. And I think that's a particularly good thing in some ways that there are still alternatives to Spotify. There are still people who trade MP3s in the deep corners <laughs> of the internet. And there are people who still go to bluegrass festivals mm -hmm. and listen to the music, and that's how they do their, their whole musical endeavors, traveling festival to festival. And, but we're interested in how 
even if you try to opt out of this culture, how that Spotify-mediated listening environment, the monoculture that we were talking about, affects the subcultures that are trying to opt out or trying to survive within this kind of monocultural technological environment. Right. It's maybe less obvious, but one of the things that happens is, okay, say you're me and you're looking for new music and you're interested in a pretty eclectic set of things. I mean, my listening this week has included Max Richter and Ingrid Michelson and Murray Gold's soundtracks for the Doctor Who television yeah. series. <laughs> that one predates him a little bit, but yes, that has been on my listening. You know, Bach piano concertos, yeah, I mean, just all over the place. So Hungarian folk music might be the kind of thing I would be interested in. But by and large, my listening habits are shaped by, and especially for other people who are maybe less uh, self-aware about this by dint of running a podcast on it, like we are or have been forced to be, it's not necessarily apparent that there are whole worlds of music and whole ways of approaching music that do exist outside of these ecosystems. It can start to seem that Spotify and Apple Music and RDO are all that there is, in a way. And so for large large groups of the population, I think it's fair to say that people are, at best, only tangentially aware of just how music doesn't fit within that monoculture, just how much right. music isn't part of the Spotify catalog, but nonetheless right. is really good and really interesting and waiting for you to discover it and fall in love with it and then dedicate the next 20 years of your life to driving around every three months to hear them play at some mm -hmm. other festival. Mm-hmm. And there are experiments that have tried to point this out. So there's an experiment I heard about a long time ago where there was a way you could listen to Spotify if you installed this certain app, I think it was, that would play you something that no one had ever listened to on Spotify before. <laughs> and so you were listening to like the rejects of Spotify or the hidden gems of Spotify or the stuff that's just been uploaded. All these things that are kind of invisible even on Spotify. Mm -hmm. That's inside Spotify. When it comes to things that are outside of Spotify, things particularly like 45 record trading culture, the great book on this that I just read recently is Amanda Petrusik's Do Not Sell at Any Price. That stuff is so far outside the realm of Spotify that you have to know someone, <laughs> it seems, to get into it. And that's how some people like it. You've got to know someone to know someone. Mm -hmm. But I think that kind of impoverishes certain people who would love to know about this stuff, but just aren't dedicating all of their life to finding new music. I know tons of people that ask me mm -hmm. what I'm listening to so that they can hear some new music because they like new music, but it's just not thing one, two, three, or even 20 on their list of things to do. And when you have a monoculture like Spotify, it streamlines the whole experience, but the things that are left out get even farther out of the ability of the quote-unquote monoculture to see. Right, and this is a sort of strange irony in that, on the one hand, things like Bandcamp and SoundCloud and Spotify and Apple Music and RDO enable us to be exposed, at least potentially, to a much wider range of music than we would have previously, because it allows people to distribute who right. would not have been able to previously. 
So if you're a random prog rock band in Russia, you can put your stuff up and get heard by some guy or gal in their mid-20s or their mid-60s in the United States who fall in love and become fans. Because the internet as a distribution platform exists and because these specific platforms exist. But simply because of the echo chamber effect that many of these things have and many of the ways that the social gamification, as it were, of these services have, more often than not, what ends up happening instead is that reinforcement of monoculture. Right. And so we can find both technological and non technological solutions, but in many ways, any effective technological solution is going to have to be driven first and foremost by non-technological solutions. Because as good as applying a, a new piece of technology is in many ways, it can't always solve these issues. And so we have to have cultural discussions about what we value and how we value it as well as simply saying, let's build the tools. That doesn't mean stop building the tools, but it means let's have a broader discussion about the kinds of tools we want to build and the limits of those tools. And that's the duality that we're interested in at winning slowly. We have the ability and we use it a certain way. And how does the difference between the ability and the way we use it affect the future? And at this point, I think particularly because of the ways that Spotify is run economically and the people it's set up to privilege, as well as the GraceNote database is run to set up a particular type of person. I think that we have a large gap between our ability and the ways that we can Mm -hmm. make lots more music known to a lot more people. Before you go... A fun piece of follow-up. A few weeks ago, during our Before You Go session, we mentioned that The Atlantic was kicking off a new blog section they're calling Notes. And we just wanted to note that, number one, they're still at it and blogging a lot. But number two, and more of interest to us, their approach of using email as a form of comment and interaction with readers has been going smashingly well. They've been featuring really thoughtful comments on Pretty controversial topics. I've watched uh, ongoing, almost thread-like discussions happening of interactions between the authors of the posts and then emails they feature about issues as wide-ranging as health and obesity, the nature of feminism and whether people want to call themselves feminists and why or why not, the approach we should or shouldn't take on gun control and how to conceive of it and why people react the way they do on it. Really fascinating stuff. It is the best comment section, as it were, I have read on the internet in years, possibly ever, and they're getting there by not having comments, per se, but just by having email. So keep it up, the Oh, man, human curation. It's like that's the best idea we've come up with. (laughs) Technological solutions can't always save Mm. the day. The music at the beginning of the episode was Psych Rocker by Honey Milk featuring De Montevert. It is a great song that is actually poking fun at the band itself. I will leave that to your <laughs> edification and I commend it to you. We used it by permission. Please don't use it without their permission. Thanks again to Jeremy W. Sherman for sponsoring the show this month. You can find the fullest of sponsors in the show notes. And if you'd like to support the show yourself, please do. You can pledge monthly at patreon.com slash winningslowly or give directly at cash.me slash dollar sign winningslowly. 
And again, we're committed to giving 10% of whatever support the show receives to the Internet Archive to help preserve the interwebs forever. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. And if you like the show, would you do us a favor? Please rate us and review us on iTunes. It helps. You can also follow us on Twitter or app.net, at WinningSlowly. Or you can subscribe to our Facebook page. On those social media, we try to post the episodes themselves, of course, but also content related to previous episodes. This last week, for example, we posted one about how the U.S. and Russia can't even figure out how to deal with astronaut urine. Because space, it's hard. Space. When you want to tell us your thoughts, do. Our now repeat contributor, Andrew Fallows, said, I love listening to the podcast, but every once in a while I wish I could pause it and tell you guys my thoughts because I have feelings about the things you guys talk about. Thanks, Andrew. Tell us. Thanks. And thanks to all of you (laughs) who have feelings. Please do tell us about them. (laughs) You can hit us up on any of those social media or email us at hello at winningslowly.org. As always, thanks for listening. Man, some fun bloopers today, right? Uh, I try to protect us from our worst bloopers. <laughs> uh, you can use them in your uh, audio editing class, for examples, yeah. right? <laughs> yeah. First, we have some follow-up. Oh, I thought you were going to do that at the end. Ah, thus the confusion. Yeah, because you, yes. you tagged it in there. Uh <laughs>